This is Revolution at Sea with John Curtis Perry. Episode 5, Portuguese Pioneers. The Spaniards headed westward and found America, hoping at the start that it was simply a minor, if annoying, obstacle on the route to China and Eastern Asia. The Portuguese took the other direction, heading south and ultimately eastward around Africa. In the process, the Portuguese developed three models of imperial organization, three expressions of the expansionary impulse. The first was strategic, establishing key coastal fortresses in North Africa and then farther south. Their goal was to circumvent the Islamic world in the Mediterranean in a vain quest to find allies to help them recapture the Holy Land for Christianity. The hope of capturing the spice trade was also a motivator, moving eventually into the Indian Ocean and militarizing what had been a demilitarized space, creating an oceanic frontier in the northern Indian Ocean, spilling out into the Malacca Straits and over into the South China Sea, the Portuguese did much with only modest resources. A second expression of the Portuguese enterprise was agricultural, a colonial presence, initially in the Atlantic Islands, the Azores, Madeira. They would become integral parts of the mother country. The islands developed a plantation agricultural pattern subsequently applied to Brazil on a far greater scale. Later, of course, Brazil would become independent. A third form of expansion was a commercial presence for the Portuguese, notably on the Guinea coast of West Africa, gold and slaves being the lure, as I mentioned earlier, this was characterized by minimal territorial occupation or settlement or involvement in production. Here, unlike the New World, disease acted as a severe inhibition to the Europeans coming from a temperate climate into the tropics. But the Portuguese pioneered in linking Africa to global trading networks. Europeans make coastal West Africa part of a global oceanic system, and Africans, many as slaves, become part of a global diaspora. For the Portuguese, the Indian Ocean combines strategic with commercial objectives under Afonso de Albuquerque, general and statesman, a man with an oceanic vision. He and his followers carefully chose key points to seize. From Sofala for gold from Zimbabwe to Macau, the gateway to China with its silks and porcelains. The keys were Ormuz and Malacca, choke points of global significance even today. 
Ultimately, the Portuguese chose Goa on India's Malabar coast near Bombay as the administrative core of a Portuguese-Asian seaborne empire. The Portuguese holdings were characteristically small, territorial enclaves of a few square miles, dominated by fortress and church. They had mixed-race populations, and the Portuguese language becomes the lingua franca. The Portuguese were consistent in their wish to proselytize, and they struck deeper local roots than otherwise might have been the case because of religion. In the effort, the Jesuits stood out as a multinational order, the first planetary men. They were educators as well as priests. A senior Jesuit wrote, Each Jesuit college is a Trojan horse filled with soldiers from heaven, which every year produces conquistadors of souls. How few Portuguese for such a global entity. In 1527, the population of the mother country was 1.4 million at most. By 1640, it had increased to about 2 million. By 1700, there are possibly 150,000 Portuguese overseas. In Brazil, the Atlantic Islands, and the African-Asian coastal fringes. Many would intermarry with local peoples. Portuguese prejudices were strongly theological, not racial. They formed tiny expat communities of mostly sojourners, officials, clergy, soldiers, merchants, adventurers, a whole world of vagabonds, pirates, and rogues, those on the fringes of power. Some renegades drift off as advisors, mercenaries, freelancers, retainers of indigenous rulers, reflecting great individual entrepreneurial opportunities with an international cast of characters. Many participants were non-Portuguese Europeans, working themselves into the interstices of lucrative local trade networks, living within the fascinating shadows of history. We don't know much about them, and we wish we knew more. The Portuguese found that intra-Asian trade was worth a great deal more than trade on the long Cape route to homeland. It offered far quicker returns on capital. These segmented trading voyages were known as the country trade. Within the Indian Ocean, they served to generate profits that could eventually be returned to Europe in the form of bulk cargoes of spices and other exotic goods. The Portuguese never established a compact empire in Asia. They were too few, and the local opposition was too great. Perhaps their disposition was too restless. It seemed they liked to do business on the move. Even their missionaries were peripatetic. Thus, they created an empire of outposts, of frontiers without hinterlands. One viceroy advised the king, Sire, the greater number of fortresses you hold, the weaker will be your power.
let our forces be on the sea, because if we should not be powerful at sea, everything will be against us. Ultimately, kings ignored this advice. Later monarchs develop a new interest in territorial space, aided by a growing superiority in weaponry. The Portuguese moved toward creating an Afro-American empire of large territorial units, land-based imperial structures, Angola, Mozambique, with Brazil in the 18th century being the climax. All this happens after Portugal's great oceanic career had faded away. In Asia, some of the strongest powers, the Safavid in Iran, the Mughal in India, and the Qing in China, remain largely indifferent to the Portuguese and other European intruders who would follow them. European maritime networks did not challenge the interests of these major continental empires. No Asian state develops a maritime strategy and attacks Portuguese bases or lines of communication in a systematic way. The European intruders were as free from retaliation as pirates who were rarely attacked in their lairs. The characteristic Indian Ocean ship the Dao, ill-suited to carrying cannon, proved highly vulnerable to Portuguese warships. Locals did not even try to compete with the Europeans on the high seas, but they could run fast and evade European ships which carried powerful cannon and were larger and sturdier, but many fewer in number. Local people could operate dows and their oared galleys with immunity close to shore where European sailing ships were at a disadvantage. And so they kept on plying their ancient routes. For the Portuguese, real competition, both commercial and military political, was from fellow Europeans. The Portuguese were superior as sailors but not as businessmen. They were instinctively interested in the new special military technology of gunned ships, but do not move beyond the hardware. The Fidalgos, the noble landed aristocratic leadership, had limited understanding or interest in the benefits of capitalism and trade. Portugal does not develop the institutional and organizational structure to sustain its oceanic achievements. In commerce, the distribution system lay outside their hands, and they developed no means to put it within their hands. They couldn't control all routes and all sources of supply. The Arabs, Persians, and Indians learned to circumvent the intruders. The Portuguese were never able to seal off the Red Sea. Thus, Alexandria could remain a center of the spice trade beyond Portuguese reach. Within Asia, the Portuguese focused on a redistributive network, not the sources. They used entrepôts like Ormuz or Malacca, 
They did not increase the volume of existing trade. They did not introduce any new economic element. Asia set the terms of the trade and the relationship in virtually all respects. Asians chose to remain largely untouched by the encounter. Portugal, as pelagic pioneer, overthrew no great empires, created no new balances of power, inspired no emulation of its political or social institutions, but established the first great global language now spoken by 25% of the Southern Hemisphere, and the Portuguese successfully spread the first global religion, Christianity. Join us next time as we talk about how the Habsburg-Castilian Empire created a different kind of oceanic state. Revolution at Sea is written and spoken by John Curtis Perry, with additional voicing by Jamie Rosenberg. Production by 1623 Studios, Gloucester, Massachusetts. Post-production and distribution by Albert Wishade Foray. Goodbye until next time. <laughs>